it's, it's an honor uh, to be here with you this morning and continuing in the current series. And our text this morning is Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. Now, I don't know how many of you were, you know, if there was a scale of Bible scholars from 0 to 10, how many of you were 10s? Any 10s? Anyone bold enough to put your hand up? Um, because that means you know the order of the minor prophets. You can find them without looking at the index uh, and all those sort of things, and you can quote entire books. Um, but if you're somewhere towards the other end and you don't even know how to find things in the Bible, that's absolutely okay uh, because we're going to take our time this morning because uh, there, there are going to be no, no slides. Um, the only way we're going to find texts is you're going to have to either look them up in your uh, Bible. Um, if you need a physical Bible and you don't have one, please raise your hands. There are a lot at the back and someone will come all the way down to you. There's one here. There's two folks over there. Anyone else? Keep your hand raised up. Maybe more people, please. And other than that, um, your phones, and you really can use the index to find some of these things if you don't know, for example, where Philippians is, or Isaiah is, or Hebrews is, or John, or Acts, or Psalms, or Matthew, and we are going to touch all of those at some point this morning. Um, Firstly, let's start, please, with, well, let me say, I mean, the Bible's a big deal, right? Um. You know, we, we can keep asking God, I need your word, I need your word, I need your word, I need you to speak to me. God's spoken a whole lot. And, and over the centuries, um, it's been recorded and written down and translated and preserved. And that, that means that as Christians, I think there's a priority. Even Psalm 1 says that the, the person that meditates day and night on the law of the Lord, right? That means that we set ourselves up at the beginning of the day, the end of the day, the mid, begin at the middle of the day to think about things that God has said to us, to reflect on them. Sometimes, and Benton and I were speaking about this earlier on, sometimes I think we move too quickly on Sundays. We take, we take huge passages of text and we go through the whole passage and we try and talk about the whole thing rather than taking a, a little verse and talking about it for the rest of the year until everyone gets it because the scripture says that we have mighty weapons in God for tearing down strongholds. And the strongholds that hold us back from living the way that God wants us to live are actually, the scripture says, mindsets. And our imaginations and the way we think and the way we, we, we reason. And it seems as if sometimes to tear down a, a lifelong way of thinking, a lifelong way of reasoning, a lifelong imagination, it, it doesn't always happen in a minute. And so I wonder whether we should focus more and rather than covering a lot just a little bit and come at it this way and come at it that way and come at it that way it's a little bit of what I'm going to try and do this morning there's a big passage so we're going to start with reading the whole passage so turn in your Bibles please to Philippians chapter 2 and I'm going to give you a chance to find your way to Philippians chapter 2 starting at verse 12 and let me just see a brief show of hands so I get a sense that the majority of people have found it and are there and that we can start reading that's enough okay Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you, and I'm reading from the New King James Bible, which will look a little different maybe than the other translations that folks have. I'm sorry. Uh, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How many of you have the phrase fear and trembling there? How many of you have anything other than fear and trembling? Well, what else do you have? Anything else? Or is it fear and trembling everywhere? With reverence and fear. Reverence and fear, fear and trembling. Thank you. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, I'm going to focus on a particular couple of verses, which are verses 12 and 13 in a little bit. But before we come to that, I want you to look at what Paul seems to be saying in verse 12. He's saying that he was with the Philippians. Now he's not with the Philippians, and he's asking them in his absence to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And it's almost as if he's saying to them that I've written you a letter and that might be all you get from me for the rest of your lives. Because, because he, he, he says in verse um, 16, he refers to rejoicing in the day of Christ. So I wonder if Paul's given them this letter, and, and he does say in, in verse 24 that he's hoping that Timothy um, will come and visit them. Um, sorry, not verse 24, in verse 19 that Timothy will come and visit them. And in verse 25 that Epaphroditus will come and visit them. And he says in verse 24 that he might also come and visit them himself. But it's almost as if Paul has delivered this letter to them and says that, that, that you, you did well when I was with you. Now I'm not with you. Now it's like, kind of get on with it. So it's almost as if a preacher says that this is the last thing I'm ever going to say to you. There's going to be no sermon next week or the week after or the week after or the week after. There might be, but just in case there is not, until the day of Christ, it's on you. The responsibility is now yours until Jesus comes again. And I hope that when Jesus comes again, that we're going to stand together before him and we're going to rejoice because you reckoned that it wasn't down to the preacher to preach sermons each week for you to live a Christian life, that you begin to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I find that interesting because sometimes it means that maybe we make folks a little too dependent on us because we preach too much and we sing songs too much rather than we'll see you in a year. Everybody in the church building's closed for a year and, 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 and if we don't see you in a year because we forget to open the doors, we'll see you on the day of Jesus. And on the day of Jesus, may we all have so much to rejoice about because everyone reckoned that they were going to just go out and work out their own thing rather than making it someone else's responsibility. And so the verses I want us to focus on then are verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his own good pleasure, for his good pleasure. Three elements there. The first element is to work out. How many of you go to the gym? How many of you run? How many of you work out at home? How many of you hate working out? How many of you like sitting on the couch instead and eating and watching TV? And the idea of working out is abhorrent and terrible. But you have to do it, right? And we understand that term, and I don't know whether that's what it meant back then, but that's what it means to me now. There's this call for us to work out. The second aspect of this, and I'm going to look at each of these three aspects in a minute, is is that there's meant to be this fear and trembling involved in this process of working out your salvation. And the third thing it references is that God is doing a work where? 
in you. God's doing a work in you. So look at those three elements. There's something we have to work out. There's this attitude, this posture, this this, this fear and trembling that should, should consume us, should, that we should experience when we're working out our salvation, but we're reckoning and realizing that God is working in us. And if you look at the difference between working out and God doing work, you realize that, that, that that's kind of where we, we, we sometimes get in difficulties, right? Because if you think that God's going to do a work, I might be con- content to say that God's going to do it all so I don't have to do anything. And on the other end of the scale, I might think that I'm going to work, and I'm going to work so much and work so hard and work so intently and focused in a way that God doesn't have to do anything, right? And, and I don't know where you line up on that scale. If we have the, the activist, I do things. I get up in the morning. I don't need an alarm clock. I work, and no one has to motivate me to do things. I show up early because if you're five minutes late, early, you're late, or whatever that thing is. Who, who's that? Who's there? Right? And who's the other end that you just you just you're just lazy? Right? You're just lazy. Maybe. Like I am. And my whole Christian life has been trying to understand what this balance is between me doing it all. So I've got, to, I've got to have this discipline of reading the scriptures and I've got to pray and I've got to do this and I've got to do that and I've got to do that. But at the end of the day, I keep doing that and sometimes it doesn't seem as if anything's changing because I've got to trust in the work that God's doing in me. And even in Christian theology, it splits that way. You'll have churches that are all about the experience and it's the experience and it's the experience and the experience and the experience and there's no discipline and they're perpetually late, right? You'll have churches like Grace Marietta who never RSVP to anything, Right? But they, they show up anyway, or they complain when you cancel the event. Ali, that wasn't just offering you that free. Um, right? But you have, you have other f- congregations that are zealous and are always there first and always there on time. And I think the people that are the lazy people probably need to go to this church. And the people that are the people that are the activists probably need to go to the church that's all about the experience. Because I think God's telling us that there's this balance between his work and our work. And I think it was Martin Luther King, the Reverend Dr. King, he spoke a a sermon about how do we rid the world of evil. And he says, is it all us or is it all God? And he says that through history, we've all tried to do it on our own and we've just waited for God to do it. But instead, no, it's this partnership. And so what I'm speaking to you about is a balance, a balance that you have to understand your own tendency. You have to know what you are, because if your theology lines up with your personality, that's problematic. If you're on the lazy end of the scale and you believe that it's just Jesus take the wheel kind of thing, right? You try that on the way home. Jesus take the wheel, unless you're driving a Tesla. <laughs> let go and let God is or is not in Scripture. It isn't. But you see, there's this tension, and I don't know that any of us ever get it right all the time. Because in the passage of, in the book of Isaiah, you don't have to look it up, but it says that God never grows weary. He never faints. His understanding is is unsearchable. This is Isaiah chapter 40. He gives power to the weak, and those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the young people faint and grow weary, and young men shall utterly fail. But those who do what? Those who... Wait on the Lord, shall renew their strength, and they will mount up with wings like eagles. If you think what that is, I've never sat and watched an eagle, and I think at some point they stretch their wings out and just let the, the wind 
take them. And I think that's an example of, of how the Christian life is meant to be because it says we shall run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. Jesus, even in the New Testament, when he speaks about taking on a yoke that is not ill-fitting, is saying that if you walk with me, this is actually easy because you walk at the pace that I walk at. And so I think that sometimes the activists of us are going to run ahead of God and we might get weary, we might get tired, and we might burn out, and we might have to come back to where he is because he wasn't that far ahead. And there are those of us who are behind God, and God's pushing us and pushing us and saying that, that I'm ahead of you, and we're just still sitting on the couch, and we're not doing anything, and we're still waiting for God to do the work. And so I think this scripture is, is about trying to work out how the balance works. But interestingly, Paul doesn't tell us how the balance works. He just gives us the work it out, God's working in, fear and trembling. So we're going to try and answer how this balance might work. Now, before I speak about the working out and the working in thing, I want to speak about fear and trembling. What is that? Reverence, Todd said, is in that scripture. We're approaching God with reverence. If you think about when Moses is on Mount Sinai, what's going on on the top of Mount Sinai in the Old Testament? There is thunder. And there is lightning, it seems, and there's this voice of God speaking. And if we're experiencing that, our experience then is what of God? We are afraid of him, aren't we? And we tremble before him. But interestingly, it doesn't take them very long before they're building a golden calf. So that stuff doesn't last too long. So maybe it's not just that awesome, I'm really afraid of God in this moment. But I don't think we're meant to cast that out either. And interestingly, if you were to turn to Hebrews um, chapter 12, um, please, if, if you can, chapter 12, about verse 18, um, it, it says there that, that we, so we in the New Testament, it's speaking of, we're not speaking about the people in the Old Testament. He's speaking to us. It says, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. So he's speaking about the, the Sinai mountain and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word shouldn't be spoken to them anymore. Verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses says, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. And this is what should scare us a little bit. But it says, more than that, you have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men, made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Verse 25, see then that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth... How much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth? But now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have, what's the next word? Grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So I think that fear and trembling is a little bit like what they experience on Sinai. We recognize we're dealing with a holy God in direct relationship because of the work of Jesus. 
I think fear and trembling is also because we recognize it's a holy calling. That if God asks you to do anything, it really should matter. Because God is saying, I choose to partner with this man, this woman, this child, this, this young person. I'm choosing you. I'm choosing you. I'm choosing you. I'm choosing you. I could have chosen anybody else, but I choose you. 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 And that should bring with it a sense of awesomeness and fear and trembling because the holy God chose me. That somehow I'm part of God's plan in my generation in this time in this season for his purpose, that should fill us with fear and trembling. But I think the other thing that should fill us with fear and trembling is recognizing that anything God calls us to do, we cannot do apart from him. God calls us to things that are impossible. God calls us to things that absolutely we cannot do in our human strength. And so there should then be a sense of dependency on God. And I think when I'm dependent on God, there's a fear and trembling because I recognize that I can't do this in my own strength. Those of you who are Old Testament scholars will know that when Jesus in the wilderness quotes the scripture, man shall not live by bread alone to Satan, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says that God leads them through the wilderness to, to humble them, to teach them a dependency on him. Every day they have to get up and get manna. They don't know what it is. That's why it's called manna. Manna literally means what is this, right? <laughs> and they have to collect it and they have to trust him because he says on the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth day, you connect, sorry, fifth day, you collect enough for that day and some of them don't listen and they store it up and it goes moldy and rotten. And on the, the, the sixth day, you've got to connect, collect enough for the seventh day because on the seventh day, you're meant to rest. And God's teaching them this, this dependency. Imagine what that's like. Every day, you're going to bed, and you're like, is it going to be there in the morning, whatever it is? And he's feeding them water from the rock. And when they're hungry for bread, bread, I'm sorry, for, for, for meat, and they're complaining, we don't have, we, we're eating too much bread, we need, we need filet mignon. Then the filet mignon falls from the sky in the form of quails, and they eat that, Right? God's teaching them dependency, but, but I, I pro please read Deuteronomy 8 at some point because it says what you have to watch out for is when you stop being dependent on God. Because it says you're going to go into a land that is rich and there's iron and copper in the hills. And when you go in there and you mine the iron and you mine the copper and you build your houses and your crops are abundant and your, 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 your flocks are abundant, you're going to forget God. Because you're going to start to think that I got it now. And it says in Deuteronomy 8 that you're going to think that I did this. You're going to forget that it was God that led you through the wilderness and God that fed you and you've got all this abundance. And God says, he warns them, he says, be careful when that happens that you, you don't forget me. And so you see that fear and trembling is about this persistent inhabit in a space of dependence on God. Which is what I think sets us up to talk about what work God is doing. So that's my few words about fear and trembling. It says that God is working in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so the purpose that God is working in you is because there's something he wants you to want to do, to will to do, and something he actually wants you to actually then do. And so God's working in all of us. Whether you believe it or not, he is. And the question is, how do we discern that? How do we understand what God's doing in us and what the point of that is? What is it he's trying to point us towards? Now, if I ask you the question about how God worked in some people in Scripture, 
Can you think of any examples of, of the work that God did in men and women in Scripture because he wants them to align with his purpose? Anything. Let me start you off with one then since everyone's so quiet. Pharaoh. How does God work in Pharaoh? Pharaoh has a hardened heart, and God seems to be hardening his heart further, right? But what's the point? What's God trying to get Pharaoh to do? Let his people go. So God's, God wants Pharaoh to want to do that and then to do it. And eventually Pharaoh does it, right? And so the work in Pharaoh is, 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 is the work that God's doing to cause the outcome that God wants. And he does it through plagues and, and eventually the death of his own son, right? Now, none of us wants God to get us to do something through plagues or the death of our kids, Right? But it seems that the harder the heart, the heart, the more God will do to get you to ultimately do what he wants you to do anyway, right? And so he tells us that as Christians, we've got to have soft hearts and not be stubborn. Let me think of another one. Any others? Jonah. How does it work with Saul? Okay, let's talk about Saul in the New Testament. So Saul in the New Testament, uh, there's a point in Acts, I think it's Acts chapter 9, when, when, when Saul has been doing what? Saul has been persecuting the church. And actually, it's turns out that it's actually Jesus that he's persecuting. Now, do you think God has been on Saul's case for a little bit, and he's been poking him and saying, stop, 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 stop. Do you think God's doing that? Of course he was. Because in Acts 9, when God eventually says, enough, Paul, what does God's enough for Paul look like? Saul, sorry. He ain't Paul yet. Damascus Road, what happens on the Damascus Road? on the floor, right? (laughs) Okay. And then suddenly he can't see. He's struck blind. He's thrown from his horse. He hears a voice, and the voice eventually says for him, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What's a goad? It's a sharp, proddy thing that you prod animals with to get them to do stuff. So it tells me that God's been prodding Saul and prodding Saul and prodding Saul and saying, stop, 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 stop. It's been enough. Now, if there's a sliding scale of God's, I'm going to start here, and I might start here by, while you're reading the scripture, I might just shine a light on a particular verse, but they don't hear that. And maybe their conscious brain is so rational that I've got to, only, I've got to speak to them in dreams. Even Peter has this. Peter has a vision when there's a blanket let down from heaven that says, take and eat, because Peter hasn't got the idea that the Gentiles are part of God's plan. So God has to break past his rational brain. It says Peter's up on the roof waiting for dinner, and he's in a trance because dinner's taking time, and Peter, in a trance, sees a blanket let down, so God gets to him that way. But Paul's as stubborn as Peter because in Acts 16, there's a point it says that Paul is trying to go to, to Asia to preach the gospel, but it says the Spirit of God forbids him. Now, what does that look like? To be forbidden by the Spirit of God. The trains weren't running. The ship was not around. Whatever it is, Paul eventually discerns how? Acts 16 in a dream. While he's trying to go to Asia, it seems as if the Spirit of God resists him. God's trying to do a work in him. Paul's not getting it. And in a dream, he has a man from Macedonia saying, come over here. And so he just wakes up and says, okay. Let's go to Macedonia, right? So I'm asking you, Jonah, what's God's will there? 
He wants him to go to Nineveh and preach. And Jonah decides to do what? Other way. So God does what? Messes it up. (laughs) And we don't want God to mess us up. Do we? You can be the stubborn Christian. And I've got a friend who's a little like this who said that he told God when he was became a Christian, he ain't changing one thing, and God messed him up to change him. But he changed him. And that's the grace of God, I think, that God cares enough for us. But how about we respond early and we have softer hearts? Hearts that even that parable of the sower tells us that, 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 that the soft soil, the soft prepared soil produces abundant fruit. God wants to give us so much grace that we're filled with grace to give to others. At the end of the day, it's not just about getting us to change direction, which I think he will also always do. If we're heading the wrong way and God loves us in abundance, he will turn us around. And I can think of examples in my own life when supernaturally God has just changed my direction because of my stubborn, hard heart. And I'm learning, I hope, to respond a little earlier and respond a little promptly, more promptly to God. But how many of you have, have experienced closed doors that have changed your direction? How many of you walk through doors because they're open? It's, it's, it's interesting. There's, there's a scripture that actually tells us that that's, that's kind of okay. And because we see many people in scripture experiencing the same thing, because Paul goes to Macedonia because the doors to Asia were shut, right? Um, and, and only because of the dream. Um, but there's a scripture, it's Psalm 32, verses 8 to 9, that, that when God promises to lead us, he says, I will lead you with my eye. It's almost as if my eye becomes God's eye. And I see he wants me to do that. I see he wants me to do that. I see he wants me to do that. This is how Jesus lived. This is how the apostles live when it says at the beginning of the book of Acts that when they're on the way to the temple, there's a guy who's begging for alms. And, 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 and Peter says, I haven't got silver or gold. But he clearly in that moment sees that God wants to do more than give the man money. He wants to heal him. But that's Psalm 32, 9 to 8 to 9. God says, I will guide you with my eye. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which lack understanding and will only come near to you if you harness them with the bit or the bridle. What does that look like? That means if you want me to turn direction, okay, if you want me to turn that bit or bridle, right? I'm like this. Some of you might be like that. I pray you're not, right? That when God prompts you gently in your heart and says, do this, you're like, yes, yes. Stop this. You say, of course. You see it in your scripture reading. It doesn't take the prophet to walk in and like it happens to David after his issue with Bathsheba and to tell him a story because he can't get it on the front of him. At the end of the day, you are that man in the story, Right? And I don't know whether there's a sliding scale, and at one end is the little quiet voice of conscience, 
and then the conscience that comes from reading scripture and then little supernatural experiences and then maybe the kind word of the prophet that says it's not over for you yet and then the word of the prophet that says you're really about to lose whatever it is that God's called you to and there are open doors and I'm pointing you towards them and I've closed everything else around you. I don't know how it works, but at the end of the day, I think this is how God works in us. To will, because he's trying to get our minds to align with what he wants to do. Romans 12, I think it is, says that um, we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And when that happens, we will, we will know the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. It's good. It's perfect. Acceptable. Do I like it? Do I like it? Am I going to wrestle with it? Am I going to hate it? Am I going to run the other way until I get put in the belly of the large fish? Am I going to run the other way until the goading causes me to be struck from my horse, whatever that looks like in 2023? Until he closes me in and hems me into a dark place? Until my life is a mess? Until everything... God's trying, is God trying to get your attention? Is God trying to get your attention? Look at your life. Look at the circumstances of your life. Let's all assume that we are the horse or the mule that lack understanding and we're not following his eye. And so God might be trying to just jog our attention. If there have been prophetic words, if there have been dreams, who writes their dreams down? Is it just me? Seriously. Is it really just me? It is clearly just me. <laughs> okay. Who remembers their dreams without writing them down? Okay. That feels a little better. But why didn't you write it down? <laughs> yeah. Anytime I have a vivid dream that I remember, I'm writing that thing down even if I don't know what it means that day. God has radically changed direction for me. I remember there was a time I was doing a, there was a couple business partners who... It wasn't really working with them. And, and I had a dream, and it was literally this. I was in the back of the plane, and I felt God told me that I was not up the front of the plane. I was letting other people drive this thing. And when I went to the front of the plane in this dream, there were two pilots who were fast asleep. And the plane was crashing into the ground. And I'm trying to pull the flight yoke, whatever it is. I've never been in a cabin up and it's not making any difference and I see this button big button says autopilot so I hit that and the plane corrects its course skims the top of the trees and there's more to the dream but that dream told me clearly something was wrong in two business relationships and I said God prove that and I got a call from a company that one of them was about to contract with and said look I'm just calling you to tell you that one of these guys is trying to do a deal that I think you need to know about because he's about to try and do something terrible for you. And I wrote it down. I didn't understand it. I, but there's one of those I just understood immediately. And I've had many other things like that. And I don't know, it's because I write and compose that I believe that out of nothing, God's going to give me something every second because I literally have pads of paper next to the toilet, in the car, in the kitchen, um, so that anything that comes, it's going down on, on, on the... I, I can't wait to leave the restroom to get to the bedroom back of paper or, or, or to leave the car. If I'm in a car, you see me writing on napkins, right? Um, it's, it's because God's going to speak. Get it down because... because if this is how he wants to talk to you, are you going to save yourself the Damascus Road? I want to save you all from the Damascus Road experience. 
Because certainly God has a point for your life and a purpose for your life and a, and a, and a direction for your life. So that's God's work in us, right? And when we discern that, when we work out what it is that he wants us to do, what next? How do we balance it? And I literally said, God, help me with this when I was preparing. I need a picture of what this workout, work-in thing looks like. And the image that came to me was um, Peter walking on water in Matthew 14. So can we turn to Matthew 14, please? And while you're turning to Matthew chapter 14, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so it's the first of the Gospels in the New Testament, Prior to this incident, Jesus has received word that John the Baptist has been beheaded for standing up to Herod and telling him that it was wrong for him to have a relationship with his brother, sister, something like that. Not sure exactly what the relationship was. And it says, Jesus withdraws to a quiet place, but the crowds follow him. And because so many people follow him, he turns to his disciples and he says, feed them. And his disciples say, no, 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 this can't work. There's too many of them. We can't feed them. Uh, I'm telling you this because this is important because the sequence this has all happened. Sometimes we look at individual verses and we miss what comes before. And we miss why the writer writes that before this because that helps me understand this, right? And, and so as we're leading up to, to, to what's about to happen, Jesus has told his disciples, um, he says, you feed them. And we say... No, <laughs> right? Because there's too many of them. And he says, there's a little guy with some loaves and fishes. And we would say, but that's not enough loaves and fishes. He's setting us up to show us something. What he's, is he setting us up to show us? That he's amazing. That anything he says to do, we should do. That anything he says is possible, is possible. That if there's a billion people here and he says, Benton, feed them. Benton says, how? Rather than no or you know, sorry, because I, let me put, Douglas, feed the billion. I'm like, no, <laughs> I can't. I don't want to. It's impossible. No one's ever done it in history. He would say, who am I? But he doesn't say, who am I? He just demonstrates it to them. And he feeds these people. And when they take in the baskets, there's more left over than they started with. And it's after that that this story happens. Immediately, verse 22 to 21. Now, those who were eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So I don't know how many that was. Well, let's assume that 70% of the women were married. <laughs> Ryan, he's doing the math. <laughs> um, uh, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people maybe. Maybe they had two kids each. Maybe they weren't like us and only had one or two. They had 24 kids each or something. There could have been 50,000 people here. But they can bother to count the women and men, women and children. Anyway, um, immediately Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. So what's the point? He says, get into a boat and do what? Go to the other side. You have to remember that, right? Because he said they could do it. He said they should do it. So will it happen? Can it happen? Yes. Irrespective of what happens next. He sends the multitudes away. And when he sends them away, he goes to the mountain to pray, verse 23. And when evening came, he was alone there. But now the boat. So we're all in the boat. Because we've all done what he said to do, right? How many of us would be like, no, I'm not getting in the boat, Jesus? Because that is some of us. That was Jonah. I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm not moving to this city. I'm not quitting my job. I'm not stopping that relationship. I'm not quitting that sinful habit. I'm not doing less of this and more of this. 
I'm not starting this thing that you've called me to do, God, even though it's difficult. But we're in the boat. And the boat now is in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, verse 25, which I think is about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., and you can go read sermons about the fourth watch. Billy Graham preached a great sermon about the fourth watch. It made me think that when I wake up between 3 and 6 in the morning, how many of you does that happen to? And maybe, that, maybe that's this special spirit, spirit hour. That rather than worry about why you're up, it's like, pray. If God's woken you up between 3 and 6 in the morning, it's not time to get up yet, don't worry about it, just pray. And if it's Satan, then he'll quit doing it because he doesn't want you to pray, right? When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. See this experience of fear and trembling? They're in the will of God. They're doing what Jesus told them to do. They're in the boat. The waves are high. The sea is tossing the boat around them. And they're afraid, probably because of the sea, but they're afraid because they see someone in the midst of their experience walking on water. Think about that. Think about your worst, most impossible experience. And in the middle of it, Jesus is just wandering around in it looking at you. And I know Jesus is wandering around looking at them because this story is in John and Mark, I think. And in the Mark passage, Mark 6 to 48, it says Jesus comes to them walking on the water and he would have passed them by if they hadn't seen him. So it's almost as if they're having this terrible experience rocking about on the boat and he's like, let me just go looking. And the standing on the surface of the water, how are they doing? Right? And one of them's like, ah, it's a ghost. Right? Because he's doing something that's not possible. I'm in a storm. I'm afraid. The waves are tossing me this way, and there's something, someone walking in the midst of this, like casually on the water. Jesus says, be of good cheer. It's okay. Don't be afraid. Peter, now look at this. Now, how many of us would have done this, right? How many of us are like, I've, I've, I've already done what you told me to do, Lord. I'm in the boat. Don't ask me anymore. Because this is bad enough in the boat. I'm afraid and I'm trembling and the boat's rocking and I'm going this way and I did what you told me to do. And the second I did what you told me to do, it got difficult. Yes. But he said to go to the other side, so why does it matter? He says, go to the other side, so what happens between what he says and there doesn't matter. But we're stuck in this place where the waves are tossing us and the boat's up and down. And the next thing, Peter's off the side. And I wouldn't have been that person because I'd, I'd be like, nope. I've got as much solid as I can get here, right? And I'm going to hang on to the boat. But Peter says, because his faith is inspired by something he saw of Jesus, he says, Lord, tell me to come to you on the water. Tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, just like in a good kung fu movie. <laughs> right? Come. I watched too many of those. You know the fight's about to break out. Exactly. Literally, come. One word. And what does Peter do? He gets out of the boat. And I don't know whether he's looks at Jesus or whether Peter's personality, and I think Peter's personality, this is how I've always heard it preached. He's, he's out, jumps out, and he's running across the, walking across the surface of the water. Think about the concept of fear and trembling. Brian and I were talking about this on Friday. Right? And Brian's words that he thinks that fear and trembling is the barometer of when you're in the will of God. 
If you ain't got any fear and trembling, you might not be in God's will. Because you might not recognize the holiness of the calling. You might not recognize the seriousness of the one who called you. You might not recognize the awe that you should hold for him. You might not recognize the impossibility of the thing that he's called you to do. Because if you've just, I got this, I know how to do this, I know how to do this, I know how to do this. Is that even the will of God? Remember the Deuteronomy 8 warning, when you come into the land and you're not dependent on me and you're now just settled, you'll forget me. Now instead of this, what's Peter doing? And I guarantee if any of us finds ourselves walking on water, whatever that looks like for you. I don't know a human being that's actually walked on water. But I know plenty of people who've done things that were supernatural. And when they started to think about how supernatural the thing they did, they were doing was, what happens? You start to sink. Because you take your eyes off the one that said, come. And then you begin to look at the wind and the waves. And you might look at the people in the boat and think, why the heck did I leave the boat? Let me get back to the boat. And before you know it, what's happening? Right? How many of you like Lord of the Rings? Isn't there a scene? Who reaches down and grabs who out of the water? Frodo grabs Sam. Sam grabs Frodo. Frodo grabs Sam. Gollum? Gollum? <laughs> There's a point that someone walks out into the water because he says, I'm following you, it, Sam, to follow Frodo because Frodo's gone on a boat. He says, I, don't you leave me, Mr., Mr., Mr. Frodo, right? Your boy Sam, he's got you, and he's following him, and he's, and he's sinking, and eventually he reach, the arm reaches, and I think this was like that. I think this is what following Jesus is. Get out of the boat. Well, at least get into the boat and walk the way that God's telling you to walk. But when he says, come, and that thing says, I can't, you, your brain says, I can't, I don't want to, it's impossible. No one's done this before. There's no way, and you just want to settle. Don't settle. Remember his word and live in that place of fear and trembling, which is the barometer, Mr. Raffi says, for when you're in the will of God. So examine your lives. You're living in a place of fear and trembling, or are you comfortable? Are you settled? Are you at peace? Have you forgotten his provision and his call and leading that is one in a pathway of dependency? And have you forgotten that it says that without faith it's impossible to please him? Have you forgotten that the scripture says we are called to walk by faith, not sight? And sight is certainty sight is knowing what tomorrow looks like sight is knowing where my provision comes from tomorrow not depending on this what is manner stuff sight is going into this place of utter impossibility that you hate you don't want to do until god changes your heart and changes your heart so you actually do want to do the thing that god wants you to do i'm just presenting this picture to you because i think pictures are easy to remember oh i love theater because i think i think i think at the end of the day you can present pictures to people and it's i believe the theater is a space you almost just like hold up a mirror to people and sometimes you can see yourself you can see other things you can see what you're not you can see other cultures and you can have empathy for people you have no idea how their lives are and you can experience this in a way and we get to do that a little here as well but i think for me the picture of peter walking on water is compelling because it tells me that's how my life is meant to be 
tells me that's how your life is meant to be. Miraculously, it's only remembered in the Gospel of Matthew. No one else remembers it when they tell this story in Mark or John. Don't know why that is. But at least, my brothers and sisters, get in the boat. Because Jesus said to get in the boat. Because Jesus says, go there, get in the boat to go from here to there. Line up with his will. And if through eyes of faith you see the ghost, the spirit, calling you on to something you like, Really? That? Me? And you say, tell me to come. Because he's not a God who's standing behind in the boat saying, get out the boat and go do that thing while I sit and watch you. He's, where is he? He's in the worst part of this all. Mastering it because it says a little later... When Peter says the wind is boisterous and he's afraid and begins to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretches out his hand and catches him and says to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Verse 33, those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And so my conclusion is simply this. Um, Live in that place of impossibility. It's not much. Seriously. And the more you do it, the easier it is for me to watch what you're doing and to do it myself. Right? So at least get in the boat. But if you hear the voice of Jesus saying, come, and that call is to walk across the surface of water or to do something so supernaturally ridiculously impossible that no one's ever done. Your rational brain says, no way. But he says, I can. Then our responsibility is what? That's it. How? How? Yes. Do. And then imagine the stories we'd have on Sunday of testimony, right? We wouldn't have to preach... (laughs) Well, let's just open the floor, right? Let's open the floor and someone come tell that story that they just lived out last week. And we'll all be shouting. Yeah, and our worship will become responsive because we'll be screaming and hollering because of what God had just done in the life of this person, that 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 person. That's the kind of community of faith I want to inhabit, right? And I get to reflect on all of these things. I'm not, I'm genuinely not a big fan of preaching, uh, um, but do it because I sense of the Lord calling me to do so. Um, but I have to inhabit every one of these texts before I present them to you because I can't present something to you that's not, that's, that's not practical. That doesn't work. I'm not living. That I'm not struggling. That's not been born out of my struggle for as long as it's been since I've been thinking about this text. It's actually irritating. Benton, I hate it when I get assigned a text because I'm like, oh no, I know what I'm about to walk through next. <laughs> to, to get to the place of being able to stand there and talk about it. Right. Um, will you join me in that? In some impossible living before our God because he says we can. Amen. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, perceiving, recognizing what God is doing in you to cause you to want to do 
and then to do what is good, perfect, acceptable purposes that matters to you, matters to the world.